Hey everyone, welcome back to This Week in Mormons, where we talk all things of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and everything Mormon. And uh, this is week two. They haven't uh, kicked me out because, well, I'm running the show now. So I'm here with uh, Jennifer Roach. Hello, Jennifer. How are you? Hello. So happy to be here. Yeah, you were on This Week in Mormons just a few weeks ago when you were on every other Latter-day Saint podcast. I, I know. I, I said I was done, and I just couldn't resist it, I guess. <laughs> nice. And if people didn't hear that one or are not familiar with you, what? how do you, how do you introduce yourself? Mm-hmm. I'm a mental health therapist. I have a particular interest in issues where church life and various kinds of abuse intersect. So I get kind of chatty when those topics don't <laughs> those topics. Yeah, I would say you're somewhat of an expert there with all the research and whatnot that you've done in, in those realms. So and uh I I hate to push you to tease it at this point, but I'm even convincing you to start your own podcast. Is that right? I am. I know. I don't know anyone else who could have convinced me to do this, but here I am and nice. we're gonna do some episodes on on mental health and faith and the intersection of that. It, it'll be fun. Well I'm excited. I'll I'll be listening. I don't I don't know if anybody else will. <laughs> no be. one else will. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And then we also have Christopher Cunningham, who's the uh, is it managing editor of the Public Square. Yeah. It's nice again, Kirk. Congratulations. Well, thank you. It's uh, we'll we'll see if you'll be saying that in a few months here. Well, I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, Christopher, what is Public Square Magazine for those that aren't familiar? I I'm aware of it. I probably should spend more time there than I do. But uh, how do you how do you explain it? Uh, Public Square Magazine is what we call a point of view editorial magazine. So uh, it's basically like the Atlantic or Harper's or U.S. News and World Report. And there's a whole world of magazines like these, but rather than be national and broad, they focus on what is a perspective of one group on what's happening in the world. And so there's very popular ones for lots of faiths, like um, First Things is one of the most influential. It's Catholic. Commentary and Tablet are very influential. They're Jewish. Uh, but up until three years ago, there was nothing in that space for Latter-day Saints. And so Public Square came in to fill that niche. And so we do talk about uh, Latter-day Saint issues in the news, kind of like you're doing. But more often, we're just saying, hey, as Latter-day Saints, what are we thinking about what's happening in the world? It's more of a, a perspective looking out. It's been a great project. Oh, that's cool. And so are you one of the founders of this of this effort? or? Yeah, so it was founded by me, Jacob Hess, and uh, Hal Boyd, who's uh, since uh, left. And he's running uh, Desert News National now. And so it's, nice. been, uh, it's been great. Nice. And so obviously with any platform uh, online, people are asking, you know, is it faith promoting? Are you trying to be non-biased? Are you, I mean, how do you describe the, the motivation or the, the bias behind it? Is, or is there one? So the motivation and bias is we want to promote voices of faith in the public square. And so we're looking at people who are motivated deeply by faith and saying, we think these voices deserve a platform where the conversations are happening. Uh, We're all Latter-day Saints who founded that. And so I don't think we're shy about the fact that that's our bias. Our circles are Latter-day Saints. Our perspectives are Latter-day Saints. But that kind of background does... um, does allow us to sort of broaden the sort of people that inspires us to bring in a a big group of people. And so while we mostly have Latter-day Saint voices, certainly not exclusively there, but it's let's get voices of faith in the public square and faith promoting. I don't know that that's the best sort of metric for us because unlike a lot of stuff that's out there for Latter-day Saints, we're not really looking at the church. 
uh, and analyzing the church. That's not really kind of what we're usually doing. We are saying, hey, we are Latter-day Saints, and what are we thinking about what's going on out there? So it's faith-promoting in the extent that it's perspectives of people of faith. Uh, we try not to highlight um, voices who are primarily trying to doubt the church. Those aren't the voices we're promoting. We're promoting voices of faith in the public square. But yeah, I don't know that that, that yeah. kind of framework usually it works exactly for what we're doing. Unlike a lot of what you find in the blogger knackle where that's a very useful framework, we're kind of just doing something different. Yeah. And, and that's fascinating, especially for me, who's sort of entering the, in this, this Week in Mormons world, where I guess, technically speaking, I'm the, the managing editor of This Week in Mormons. And, and it's been an interesting journey the last couple of weeks, sort of as I'm sharing things on social media, the way people interpret it. Like, from my point of view, I'm just trying to share stories and perspectives that are related to our faith or, or the, the broader Mormon experience, you know, whether that's a relation to other other uh, organizations that uh, are part of the restoration, you know, in, in their own way, in their own perspective. And sometimes there's, you know, for example, we're going to talk about this, uh, this article that I think was in religion news about elder Bednar and uh, a claim of, um, of uh, what do you call it, Jen? What's the word? Plagiarism. Thank you. <laughs> um, and so, you know, in sharing that people are thinking, Oh, you know, that it, it can be perceived as sort of a hit piece on elder Bednar and I don't necessarily mean to share a hit piece, but it's interesting and there's the claim and let's talk about it that going forward. So how do you like approach some of those topics as the managing editor of Public Square magazine? Oh, what a great question. Um, well, something like what happened with Elder Bednar this week, I wouldn't say that that really raises to our our radar because we're not focused on what's happening in the Latter-day Saint world in the same way that you are, for example. Okay. So we will focus on stuff that are Latter-day Saint related that make big national news. Jennifer wrote a piece or two, I think, for us, one that before the abuse scandal came out, she was kind of talking about good efforts that the church had done to prevent abuse on a big scale. And then afterwards, she kind of wrote something. And so that was certainly a big national story. And since we're Latter-day Saints, we obviously had a point of view on what was going on there. And so we wanted to talk about it. But for something like what happened with, um, with Elder Bednar and some of the claims that were made, that's a pretty niche story. So it wouldn't really hit our radar uh, in terms of, hey, let's us talk about it. Uh, so that's maybe how it changes for us. Part, yeah. of, part of what was the motivation for doing this is when we started out, we noticed that there were no Latter-day Saints on the boards of any of the major national publications. And we, said, Why is that? and we noticed that a lot of the people who worked in there came up from these niche publications. And so what happened is, their niche would kind of be talking about everything going on and contributing to the conversation. But when their niche was then in the national news, they kind of became the experts and they were able to rise the voices up that were then talking. And then that's how those people kind of climbed the ladder and, and got involved with these big major national publications. And so we're kind of following the same model that, you know, we were talking about what's happening in the news. So for example, our article that we're going to publish today and when we published last week is on book banning. Right, that has nothing to do with Latter-day Saints in particular. It's a big national conversation, but as um, but as people of faith, we, you know, a lot of our uh, writers have concerns about what's going on, both books that are being banned and concerns with books that are being presented to their children that they don't want to. And so, using their perspectives of faith, let's jump into that conversation. That has nothing to do with our faith particularly, but we certainly have interesting perspectives and backgrounds that can add to that conversation in productive ways. 
Yeah. And do you get much, uh, like, uh, criticism as far as your approach or what do people, you know, put you in a certain box that you're not, you're not trying to be in or, or whatnot? I mean, how do people characterize you falsely online? How do people characterize us falsely (laughs) online? Um, (laughs) Generally speaking. This is the second magazine that I I ran. The first one was more of a lifestyle magazine. And I think we got into a lot more of the sort of online back and forth. And so I think a big lesson we've tried to learn is we're going to do what we do. We're going to find the right audience for it. And we're going to let the results speak for themselves. So we try not to be overly concerned with whoever is – uh, talking about us. There's certainly um, a big contingent of people who call us like apologetic, that okay. we're always defending the church, which, I mean, if we're going to be accused of something, that certainly doesn't bother us. But uh, but I don't know that we see ourselves that way. We're just more trying to approach these issues honestly from our perspective. We have a perspective of faith, and so we often come to conclusions that are um, that are supportive of people of faith, but yeah, people kind of say, Hey, you're apologetic. You're not able to look at these things objectively. That's a pattern that we see a lot with not just Latter-day Saints, but with people of faith generally, that when they speak objectively from their point of view on issues, they're dismissed as being more biased than people who are coming from say a secular point of view, but that one is deemed the unbiased one. Whereas if we're doing it, I don't know that we have any, any, uh, any thoughts that were unbiased, of course we are, right? We have our biases like everyone else yeah. does. But I think sometimes people forget that like everyone else does, right? And so we're doing the same quality of editorial journalism as, as anyone else. Our, the things we're printing are well-supported, our facts are well-supported, uh, but I think it's easy for people to dismiss it, right? And yeah. in a lot of ways, like I said, there was a big gap in the marketplace when we put Public Square out there. There wasn't anyone doing this. And so I think for a lot of people who were talking publicly about the kinds of issues we did, especially on Twitter, where a lot of those conversations had happened, and they had been used to kind of having a, a monopoly on the conversation, that there was no one thoughtfully looking at these issues through a lens of faith. And so rather than have to engage with that, where they're now kind of having some dissonance about, oh, is there a thoughtful way to think differently than I do? I thought the only way a smart person could think about this issue is me. I think that does push some people off. And so yeah. it does to kind of accusations that, oh, you're too biased. Oh, you're out there. Oh, you know, you are, you know, reflexively defend the church, which like I said, if that's the worst people have for us, then great. I think we're doing our job well then. Yeah. Jennifer, I'm curious with your, with your approach of how you go through this, you know, approaching, you know, different interviews or articles you write or content that you create, um, you know, cause you're, you're a faithful Latter-day Saint and you don't want to be interpreted anything different. And so, but you also, you know, want to, and I think this is the general positive feedback you've gotten, at least we, what we received at Leading Saints when we did the, that two-part series with you is that, you know, it, it was obvious that you weren't afraid to say, you know, this is really messy. And in this particular situation, the church appears, maybe they messed up, you know, and, and it di- didn't go well, as I think many people would handle it different. So how do you approach this as far as being like, wanting to be faith promoting, but still having conversations online? Yeah, I feel like I've learned a lot this year. <laughs> um, I mean, if you if you come across my name online, you're just as likely to see um, faith promoting therapist as you are um, church abuse apologist, right? Like that's the slur that gets thrown at me. Is 
she's trying to make it okay for the church to abuse children, (laughs) which like, on the one hand, incredibly personally offensive. And on the other hand, so far beyond the truth that it doesn't even really land with me. Mm -hmm. Like if you listen to five minutes of what I have to say on the topic, you can see that that's not the truth. That's just a, that's just people poking and trying to get reactions and whatever. And so for me, it's far enough away from what actually is true that I can ignore it pretty well. Um, And at the same time, I have seen people online. I don't, I mean, I don't spend a ton of time like pursuing reading comments and stuff like that, but I have a little and, and people frequently have a way of thinking about things of like, Oh, I didn't think about it that way. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder what would happen if we asked the question this way, like, some of that can be really helpful and absolutely not. I don't want to be described um, <laughs> as some weirdo of use apologist. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah right. I've learned a lot. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. And, and I, but I've just appreciated your approach to it all, um, you know, when they're really difficult issues because, and this goes back to like, and we'll, we'll jump into this here in a minute, but this article about Elder Bednar, like, I, I'm a Elder Bednar Homer. Like he, I often refer to him, and he is my Elder Holland. I know everybody gets excited when Elder Holland stands up. I get really excited when Elder Bednar stands up. I love the way he teaches the gospel, puts it together, finds a new approach and perspective to uh, a scripture mm-hmm. passage, like he did with the um, the parable of the um, wedding feast. Right? I, I just love that. And so I'm not being like, "Aha, I got him!" You know, like I absolutely love Elder Bednar. And I, and anyways, we'll get into that. But the point being is like, I can see that maybe somebody's going through, you know, some type of faith transition or, or a faith crisis. And this is like one more thing on the pile of concern and doubt that they're, they're having. And nobody else is willing to talk about it. I want to be the type of person like, Hey, I'll sit down and talk about it. I get this kind of messy. I get there's some nuance here to, to look at. And maybe obviously someone messed up somewhere and let's talk about it and know that I'm a faithful person. I'm still going to go to church on Sunday. I still believe that Joseph Smith saw what he said he saw. I still believe the book of Mormon to be scripture, but let's talk about it. Right. And so that's where I hope we can create a space with this week in Mormons um, in order to, to have these conversations. I feel that's important. Anything, any thoughts come to mind? No, I love that. Um, There's absolutely no reason to be afraid of, um, figuring out the facts of something and trying to understand what happened. And even when leaders do something that we don't understand or that seems disappointing or that is framed in a way by somebody else that makes us super uncomfortable, all of that can be talked about. <laughs> like if it can't, we're in a world of hurt. So thank goodness that it can. Yeah. Awesome. Anything to add to that, Christopher? No, I, I agree. I, I especially appreciate what Jennifer said at the end about the framing, and I think oftentimes we try to jump into these issues, and these they're really hard because they've already been taken in through these worldviews that may not be entirely compatible with the gospel, and then we try and sit down and have these conversations, and they're not working, and the answer isn't stop talking about them, it's let's start talking about them more. Let's uncover what these hidden assumptions are that we're not realizing. Let's uncover what the cultural things that are pushing us are that we're not realizing. All those things can can help us understand why these things are bothering us and either how to fix them or maybe why they shouldn't. Um, but like you're, like she said, it, it's more talking. It's, it's looking it through, taking it to the next step, not not going the other direction and just saying, okay, we're not going to ever talk about any of these things because, because we have to talk two steps deep into it for it to make sense. Like that's yeah. not 
Oh, it's right. like old old school, like analyze something that happened in the news instead of here's a soundbite for your entertainment. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, as we move forward, I and and you know I think Jeff Openshaw would have said the same thing when he was running the show that we're we're going to talk about these things. We are we're faith promoting. We're active Latter Day Saints. Uh, we we want to to tackle these tough topics and show and maybe even model how to have a conversation about it and still retain faith and move forward and and uh, what, you know wait for the next headline to come out because there will be another one that catches us uh, off guard, of course. So um, good stuff. All right, well, let's jump into uh, some of the the headlines. One approach that, um, and I'd love to be open to any feedback from the, the audience on this, is I'm going to invite different people on. I'm not looking to necessarily be the person who's going to bring their opinion forward and on every topic and every story, but I do uh, want to invite some diverse people and backgrounds onto This Week in Mormons and and uh, and jump into some of these headlines and topics of the, the past week until I find somebody else to do this. <laughs> so yeah, my long-term plan is I don't plan to be the ongoing host unless I just have so much fun, I can't resist it. Uh, I frankly don't have a lot of time to do this. And so if there are people out there who uh, would like to be considered as maybe stepping into this realm and, and hosting, I'm open to that. You can go to contact at This Week in Mormons. I would love to hear from you. So uh, Jennifer, do you want to jump in? What what story you you brought a few stories uh, that you that you've reviewed? Where do you want to start? Do you want to start with the Bednar story since yeah. we already have yeah, kind we already of touched on it? it. Yeah. yeah. So, general conference was last weekend. Um, Elder Bednar gives this fantastic talk, includes this kind of extended analogy about a really difficult parable that's in the New Testament. As soon as he started on it, I, I was watching with friends and I said to my friends, like, oh, I'm so glad because people misunderstand this parable a lot. It gets super confusing. Like, why is the king throwing people out? Should everyone be like, everybody's welcome. And they get, the, I was super excited. Um, by, I think, Tuesday, maybe Wednesday, um, a story had been put out saying, um, you know, he should have made it more clear that the analogy he was given giving um, wasn't one that he made up, wasn't his own original research, wasn't his own original words. I've gone back and listened to it. It, 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 it would have been way more clear if he had said like, hey, this comes from so-and-so, you can read it in this book, blah, 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 Here, here's the deal. Um, in conference frequently, you get the, the stylistic choice of open quote, and then they say the quote, close, close quote, yeah. which I find which, incredible. Which I don't think, I don't hear it happen in any, too many other organizations. We sort of oh. have owned this practice and right? to the point that you'll hear in sacrament meeting, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's all, in my thinking, it's almost like that practice, like super, super emphasizing, like I am giving you a quote right now. I will tell you exactly where it starts and exactly where it ends. Yeah. In contrast, him giving this story in part, it sometimes word for word out of, out of the source that it came from and sometimes in his own words, um, it does feel like a contrast. However, the question you have to ask is like, what is plagiarism? Was that what he was intending to do here? Um, and 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 what do we do? So plagiarism, yep. the most basic definition of it is trying to pass somebody else's work off at your own, as your own. 
even in the, the verbal giving of that talk, that is not what I heard. Could he have been more clear about it? Sure. But did he have to be? I don't know. In a yeah. whole lot of in a whole lot of contexts, you would give that story with with no other padding information around it than what he gave in in a con- in a context like that. I'm not talking about an academic conference or turning in a paper for school, right? This this is a different genre of thing. So right. the the verbal version of what he did. I'm actually, I'm actually okay with it. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he like cited this pastor whose yeah. these ideas came from. He, he cited them in, in, in one area of the talk. And I guess the, the accusation is that he didn't do it enough in other parts of the talk. And so it came across as if it was his own ideas. Yeah. It, if this was, so I teach at BYU, Idaho, I teach online classes. I love it. If a student of mine turned in a paper like this, it would absolutely get flagged for plagiarism and we would have to go in and look and see what actually is the student doing? What actually are they claiming? Um, I've read a few people online who say, oh yeah, th- this guy would get kicked out of school over this. And it just, I just, I don't, yeah. I don't see it. In addition to what he did in his verbal presentation of it, I don't, I don't know if most people know this, but you can go into the, the text of every conference talk and in some of them, there are extensive footnotes. I'm mm-hmm. a huge footnote nerd. I, all the best things to read you can find in footnotes. And it is footnoted there. Part of the controversy is that was added in after the initial criticism of he's plagiarizing came out. To me, this is where um, it's more of a, it's kind of a Rorschach test of like, wh- like where are you? Um, a, a faithful person who's going to give Benar the benefit of the doubt and says like, this is an apostle of the Lord who I extend trust to. And I, and I listen to him on a regular basis. They're going to say, Oh, he wasn't trying to pass this off as his own. Yeah. They published it without the citation. An hour later it was in, this is a non-story. Mm-hmm. And then there's other people who say, Oh, Oh goodness. This is like, what more proof do you need that the church is not true? Um, and the way people react to, to a yeah <laughs> stimuli like this says a lot about that because because you know a lot of people frame it well first of all that the it was framed in the title of the article you know this isn't just a a, a pastor or a um, an apostle this is a former college president how could he make such a mistake right with hyperbole at times we frame conference talks as modern day scripture you know these are people we believe as prophets seers and revelators so. Could a revelation, quote unquote, really be plagiarized? Like, why wouldn't God have stopped that? And I, I don't know. I just feel like it's just it's just more uh, complicated than that, right? And so, <laughs> yes, we do see them as, as modern day scripture, but we also we also highlight more and more. It seems like that these are men and they make mistakes, or in the process behind them all, make mistakes. You know? Yeah. So, My mother teaches public speaking at San Antonio College. And one of the key things she has to do is talk to them about how to cite things in speaking Mm -hmm. because it's unusually difficult. When you're writing, you can just put in your parenthetical citation or your footnote and it's done. You don't have to interrupt the flow of ideas in order to properly attribute. And, And in speaking, it is much more complicated and it's much more common to do things like exactly what we saw 
Elder Bednar do, where they do attribute it, but they aren't fastidious about attributing it every time because anyone who's interested in it will, one, have heard about it at the beginning of the speech, and then two, in the printed remarks, we'll be able to see the citations. In fact, when my mother is grading speeches, she keeps the written remarks that her students have had so she can see whether or not they've properly cited it. And so it's that, it is, it's the published version and something that I feel like no one's really talked about with this is that this whole idea about citations and how we're citing things, it's, it's an incredibly Western-centric idea. Mm-hmm. There was, uh, there's been a lot of conversation. I worked on, uh, on a dissertation with someone I was helping them with, uh, um, with editing it. And what they had looked at is Nigerian students here and all the trouble that they had had with academic honesty policies, because culturally, the idea is that we are building social knowledge together, Mm -hmm. building on top of each other. That Mm -hmm. for them, of course, you're taking all the best ideas you can and putting them all together and building them in your own way, that that's not dishonest, that is community culturally building these ideas. And so to say, look, Elder Bednar may not have done this in exactly the way that the scholars that were quoted in this article would have done it, but to say, hey, look, this is a pastor over a worldwide church, then we start to look at the norms and maybe we question exactly what the norms are. I don't know exactly what the answer is here or or what it is, but I, I think we've, in this conversation, we've lost the idea that our version of how things need to be cited and what academic honesty looks like might be a little bit narrow, that we might be missing the forest for the trees. I don't think individuals would be fair to say like, oh, you know, Elder Bednar just didn't want to do his homework and he thought, oh, I got that conference coming up. How can I how can I streamline this in a way that uh, I can get a conference talk off my checklist? Oh, you know what? I could take these ideas. And, no, I, I you know, I think we're, we're, we're best in giving them the best intentions. And I get there's individuals. I, I do want to recognize those that maybe are very frustrated that this could happen. And how did, you know, especially a former college president, how, mm. how was he not responsible enough to check his work and triple check it and make sure it's good. And um, it's interesting because from what I understand, I don't, I, I think there's a process. It's not like Elder Bednar writes his talk or any general authority or the person that speaks at general conference writes their talk, walks up, walks up to the lectern and everybody's wondering, I wonder what they're going to say. No, this like the correlation department has sweated mm-hmm. over it. It's gone through some different checks so that there are some doctrinal statements that would have been crossed out before they got to the, the that international audience. But it makes me wonder like, and I bet there's these meetings happening behind the scenes of how can we tighten our processes up to make sure that this type of thing doesn't happen again? Because it, I think they have updated, Jen, correct me if I'm wrong, but they have updated some footnotes and things mm-hmm. to make it uh, kosher, right? Yeah. So I think what we have in our uh, gospel library app or online uh, should have all the required footnotes, but I think it's a good time for, uh, you know, the correlation department or whoever handles these things to take a deep breath and say, okay, maybe we shouldn't just check it for, for good doctrine, but uh, let's check it for maybe some accidental plagiarism or whatever it is. So this doesn't happen again. And I don't know, it's been years since I've written a paper <laughs> where I would actually be tempted to plagiarize somebody, but it, are there like, is there software to run these things through in order to catch that? Or how does that work? In the academic setting? Absolutely. Like there's certain assignments where I have my students, they have to upload, they call it turn it in. 
I have okay. to upload it to turn it, turn it in. We'll highlight this phrase can be found on these three websites and them only. And then okay. you as the instructor have to go in and look and decide, did, like, did this kid plagiarize us or not? So yeah, there's things that can catch that. But to me, the question isn't, um, did they not realize he was giving this information about this parable in the same way somebody else has done it? I think the question is like, in a conference talk, what's the right way What's the right way to cite that? This isn't an academic conference. I love me a good academic conference. Like, yeah. I'll tell you what. But that's not what this is. And to try and um, turn it into that, I think we lose something. Yes, of course, we don't want plagiarism, right? Like, that that would be the other extreme. But I also don't want to feel like um, I'm sitting in a academic conference where, where people are reading their papers that have been approved by their advisors. Like, yeah. I don't know. Right. Right. And, oh, I, I think it's like, we're talking about turn it in, but I think it's pretty easy to tell people discovered some of these quotes. It's because they were reading the person that he had cited in his article. Like yeah. he sent people to the source. Sure. Yeah. The footnotes were not where they should have been in the printed remarks in the spoken remarks. He may not have said it in as many places as some people would have predicted. But it's not like they had to. Someone had to do some investigative research to figure out where he had this stuff. Yeah. He told everyone where he got it from. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think anytime we say this, I mean, even anytime we use the word plagiarism, right? I think mm-hmm. the big controversy here is how a national journalist would use the word plagiarism in a remark. In a when title. it's not plagiarism. It's not. I mean, yeah. is this exactly academically clean? People, let's talk about that. But if you're discovering where something was miscited because the person told you where to find it, yeah. that's that's substantively different than how yeah. most people would use the phrase plagiarism. Yeah. yeah. And, and Jen, I don't know if you're familiar, it, it cited some other instances where other pastors and other churches have been caught uh, plagiarizing. Is it, yeah. is it the same type of scenario or are they a little more blatant and out of bounds? In the um, Protestant world, it, I mean, it's different, right? Because a pastor's got to come up with a sermon every single week. Yeah. There are probably a dozen services that they can subscribe to that essentially write a sermon for them, but not like personalized for them in their congregation and for what like these particular people they're shepherding need. It's a sermon that they're selling to hundreds of pastors that week. And then the pastor gets to give the sermon as if he sat in his office and wrote it. Um, Some people say like, gosh, like he just, he's just making a good use of his time. He's got other stuff to do. And other people say like, no, absolutely. You don't get to take a sermon somebody else wrote and pass it off as yours week after week after week. Um, But even in that conversation, there's questions about like, well, okay. Are there any actual original sermons not that many. Yeah. Um, it, it, is this just a rehash of a bunch of ideas and you essentially think of it as like, well, your research assistant wrote this and you gave it. Um, the fact that they pay for it makes some people uncomfortable. And for other people, that's like, well, he bought the rights to it. So now it is his. Um, so yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I'm, I've, for a long time, I've taught, I, I remember even times uh, back when I was a bishop, I, I'd use this um, 
this, I don't know if it's an analogy, but this, I, I'd frame the sacrament in a certain way where I really appreciate our tradition of taking the sacrament where deacons or uh, representatives take the sacrament to people as opposed to, I think in the mm-hmm. Catholic church, people stand and come to the front. Mm-hmm. And I love that, that, uh, that framing, that metaphor of Jesus Christ, that he mm-hmm. doesn't expect, he will bring his salvation to us, right? I think yeah. it's beautiful, right? And so I taught this, taught this, and then uh, I was reading one of Brad Wilcox's book, and he uses the same framing. And I sat there for a minute, and I'm like, okay, well, I know that like Brad Wilcox was, has never been in a setting where I've been speaking. Did we just have the same idea? Or maybe, and then I started questioning myself, maybe I've been in a in this setting where he was speaking, maybe he used that, but I, my brain just adopted it in its own. Right. And so I actually use that, uh, that framing in a book, a manuscript I just finished. And I just give all the credit to Brad Wilcox. I'm like, <laughs> this is something I heard him say, but, um, it's, but it's tricky, right? When you're coming up with, with weekly, um, sermons, like this is probably going to happen more often than not where you may believe in your mind that you thought of this idea, but maybe you heard it somewhere else. Right. I, I also, I mean, somebody needs a little side business, maybe like sacramenttalks.com and you could sell people like a pre-written sacrament talk for five bucks. <laughs> there, like wow. money. I'm going to have to, we got to cut that out. That's a, that's a, we're sitting on a gold mine, Jen. This is great. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, we'd love to hear from the listeners. Obviously we've had extensive uh, uh, discussion about this. What are we missing? Uh, you know, again, we want to create a place where all perspectives are heard. And and we also understand that this is really difficult for you to see, like where we've propped up general conference so high in our tradition that it's hard to see, you know, an accusation of plagiarism come to the, come to the surface. But nonetheless, like Jen said, read the talk as if no controversy has happened and, or go read, uh, what's his name? The other author, the, uh, Reed uh, is his last name. I Reed, yeah, last name is John O. Reed. Yeah. Uh, go read his works, whatever it takes to better understand the the parable of the wedding feast. And uh, it's a great talk and um, a lot to consider there. So, um, all right, Christopher, what what uh, what story came to the surface for you? Where do you want to go next? So I, I wanted to draw everyone's attention to uh, to a video. Uh, it was a reaction video to General Conference by a Protestant um, minister, Jeff McCullough. He's been doing a series of videos called Hello Saints, I think he calls it, where he is jumping into the world of Latter-day Saints and just interacting in a way that is curious, uh, but also sincere. Uh, Not all of his takeaways are particularly positive, but he's always been very generous. And his video that he did about General Conference, he went to Utah and went to two Saturday sessions uh, took off. It went viral this week, and a lot of people were talking about him and about the project he's on and what his reactions were to General Conference. And I thought it was definitely something worth talking about. Yeah, and I, uh, so Jeff is actually a good friend of mine. I reached out to him. I don't know, good friend. We've been friends like six weeks. <laughs> but, uh, new, new bestie. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, I reached out to him just through Leading Saints uh, weeks ago. Wanted to do an interview about the work he's doing and then just his leadership experience. Um, you know, in his own church. And so we actually recorded an episode for leading saints, which hasn't been published yet. Another few weeks, it'll be out. Um, and then he told me we've, we've been messaging back and forth through Facebook messenger. And he told me that he got these, 
these conference tickets and he's able to fly out and, and attend conference. So I was thinking, all right, I want to make this the best experience for him. <laughs> and so he even re references my name a few times in the video about, uh, I, I don't think he was planning to come in a shirt and tie. And so I'm like, you definitely <laughs> want to do shirt and tie. You're going to feel out of place <laughs> if you don't do that. Uh, you know, bless our people's hearts, you know, and then, uh, there's, I don't think he'd mind if I shared this, uh, interaction, but he's, I, I said, Oh, you should definitely check out the protesters. That may be, be some good, video content that you can add into your video and he's like oh so are they like anti-christian maybe lgbt like protesters and i'm like oh no these are your people my friend <laughs> these are your people protesting our doctrines and he was just like baffled like no way I'm like yeah you're gonna see a lot of them and so you see in the video of him approaching one of these protesters and sort of saying come on man there's a better way than yelling at these people these good latter-day saints you know and uh, definitely worth a watch. And I've been shocked how many people have actually reached out to me, old friends that I haven't talked to in like five years. Like, hey, I saw you on the on this video, and I'm like, you know, I have a podcast. You know, like you could. <laughs> Anyways, so uh, yeah, did, did you see it, Jen? At all? Did you watch this video? I did. I've watched a bunch of his videos. He's incredibly easy to listen to. Like, he has a great presence. Really, really personable. I love that he is continuing to learn. Some of the early on ones, he's like, oh, and Latter-day Saints believe this and this. And it was just like cringe. Like, oh, no, yeah. buddy. you're, you're, yeah. you're all. And he has gotten better. He, right. he, has, he has learned. I've been really pleased to see that. But the thing I noticed oh, in that video, he says, you know, people have been asking me if I've read the Book of Mormon yet. And I haven't read it yet. And I plan to. Mm -hmm. um, and I just thought, golly, that's the that's the series I want to watch. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, I'll be excited when he he jumps into that. Yeah. Um, and there's actually I was on YouTube today, and the the algorithm or whatever put a reaction video to, uh, his, to reaction. his to his reaction of General Conference, and and I'll, I'll put the link in the note uh, in the show notes. But you know, bless the heart of this this man's reaction video of. You know, he's basically going on there and, and you, you can watch it, but he's reading some scriptures to him and he's sort of mm -hmm. sort of frustrated that Jeff hasn't read the Book of Mormon yet and that he's sort of dismissing it without reading it. And I'm thinking, listen, man, like I've never read the Koran. <laughs> I really also don't believe I need the Koran mm -hmm. as scripture in my life. You know, I, I'm, I'm dismissing the Koran. I, I would imagine this person hasn't read the Koran either or other scripture. And so I don't know. I, obviously, Jeff's a friend now, so I'm sort of like, you know, protective of, of mm -hmm. my, my buddy. Right. But uh, it's an interesting reaction video of sort of, you know, reading some scriptures and sort of testifying like, well, if you just read these things, you're going to be yeah. a believer like us. But, you know, I hope I know I'm I'm. I hope Jeff ends up in our camp, but at the same time, I just appreciate he's willing to to talk to us as Latter-day Saints in a very kind manner. He has such a generous approach to connecting with with our faith and our people, and I think you know that we should probably respond in kind and keep yeah. the conversation going. I love how because he's so authentic to himself and to his his beliefs. When he comes to a conclusion like he did for this conference, these people can't stop talking about Jesus Christ as Savior, mm -hmm. Jesus Christ is the way, and how to get there. It has so much credibility, and it's so great to hear. And regardless of where his faith journey takes him, he's become uh, a messenger who can share truths about our faith that people may not have heard from anyone else. No matter how often we scream about yeah. How much we love Jesus Christ, no one's ever going to believe us as much as they believe Jeff McCullough because he is an outsider. He has absolutely no reason to stand up for us. 
And right. yet he's being honest and he's finding places to do it. And, and so I'm, I'm grateful and it's a great video. Sorry. I, no, I had huge respect for him. When I first read the book of Mormon, I was an ordained minister at another denomination. And I was sort of terrified in some ways of like, no one can find out I am doing this. I met with the missionaries in secret <laughs> so that people would not know and I would not right. get in trouble with my denominational friends. And so this guy's doing it out in public and I, I have mad respect for that. I also think um, people in our church love, absolutely cannot get enough of hearing how outsiders perceive them. I I get have gotten that I've been in this church almost four years. I've gotten that question really? more than any other. What did you think of us? What did you think of the, What did you think when we did this? What did you think of sacrament meeting? What do you like? They yeah. really people really 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 want to know how interesting. And that, you do not find that at other churches. Interesting, because yeah, I've been in the the Latter Day Saint bubble my whole life here, and and so I I would assume that everybody feels that way. That hey, I want you to learn about me, but you you really think it's it's more so in our faith then. It, I, I, I imagine I there are some yeah. cultural reasons why that are entirely understandable. But in general, in another, if you're attending the Methodist church and some visitor shows up on Sunday, it's just like, hey, cool that you're here. You found our yeah. website. Yeah. Um, whereas if a visitor shows up in your ward on Sunday, it would be like, oh, my gosh, how did you end up here? What do you think? <laughs> Yeah, I remember back in the in the nineties, I was in junior high when President Hinckley was on um sixty minutes. And uh-huh. it was like an event <laughs> in our faith community. Like it was I mean, there was probably every I mean, there was every Mormon eye was on that screen uh listening to that. And we were just like and it went so well too. It was just sort of like, wow, the world actually doesn't think we're crazy, you know. I was going to say McKay Coppins wrote an article for the Atlantic recently where he Mm -hmm. talked about this kind of gnawing anxiety that we have to be accepted by the outside culture, a really insightful piece, Mm -hmm. uh, certainly worth reading and and can kind of speak to some of these Mm -hmm. feelings that we often find. Yeah. I know you want to talk, Kurt, about, um, about the Mormon land podcast Mm -hmm. about the, uh, let me insert here real quick. Um, uh, I'm going to, I'll link to that McKay uh, Coppins article. And also after, uh, I asked Jeff if we could do a quick interview after he um, he went to general conference. So it's been on p- our page on this week in Mormon's Patreon account for several days now, almost a week. I will release it to the general public uh, here in the next few days, I hope. And uh, but hey, this is another reason to become a patron with this week in Mormons because I am focused and determined to create exclusive content that you will actually love. So please. Go to patreon.com slash this week in Mormons. Anyways, Chris, I just had a plug in there. Christopher, go ahead with uh, uh, moving on to the, the, the next one. You know, I didn't know that at all when I brought up that video to, to talk here. I, I, I promise I wasn't pitching for Kurt. I just thought it was a video. <laughs> nice. Um, no, I was going to say, because you brought up the 60 Minutes interview uh, with um, Mike Wallace, was it? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh when I listened to the Mormon land podcast, that was the first thing I thought of because one of the questions that president Hinckley was asked was exactly that. It's like, this is a church run by, by old men. And he used the word meritocracy. Like, how is that affecting? And president Hinckley in his way got this massive smile on his face and said, isn't it great? Yeah. And I, I thought that was a wonderful response. And I thought his response to that question might be uh, something worth talking about in the conversation about the Mormon land podcast. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I, I listened to uh, this episode with Gregory Prince on Mormon land and um, bless her heart. Peggy Fletcher stack. She has a long history of being mentioned on this week in Mormons as a, I, I respect her work and the journalism she does, but her questions as a, as a fellow interviewer, who's made a career out of interviewing people, her questions are so leading and uh, often not honest. Uh, anyways, but I get it. It's a different audience. Anyways, definitely listen to this. Uh, that Well, they, they talk about this concept. Are, are church leaders getting too, too old? Or I forget how they frame it. But um, uh, obviously with the Corner of the Twelve and the First Presidency, you know, it's a lifelong uh, calling. And, um, and, and they had Gregory Prince on. Now, I am a huge Gregory Prince fan. I could listen to Gregor Prince all day, every day. And there's a lot that I disagree with Gregor Prince about, but his book, the the rise of modern Mormonism is a must read by every Latter-day Saint. It is so fascinating to understand our contemporary history of how our early church or our, I guess, modern church wrestled with so many things from race in the priesthood to baseball baptisms to just this uh, 1800s church coming into the 1900s is so fascinating. So I love Gregor Prince's stuff. Um, and so he, they basically had this discussion about whether, you know, it, it, should there be a retirement period or um, emeritus status for uh, apostles, for, you know, the first presidency and, and whatnot. And this question has been coming up every few decades in the councils of our church and and, and whatnot. And so, um, and, and I think the discussion they had on, on Mormon land is a bit, I think they're all of the opinion of, yeah, we need to retire these these men at some point, you know, and that's not necessarily my opinion. I mean, you look at 98-year-old President Nelson and you read, I, I just went through his talk, that you know, his uh, Sunday uh, morning talk. It is so enlightening. And the way he frames things, it is, his brain is at 100% capacity as far as I'm concerned. And uh, anyways, what, what thoughts come to mind? And, and Jen, maybe I'm curious with your perspective. I, it's so fascinating to hear a story like yours coming into this church, especially with a lot of pastoral experience in the past, like, and then you're in this world of, of Moses and there's apostles that live and breathe and that we listen to. Like, was that hard for you to wrap your religious arms around? Oh, absolutely. That was actually one of the hardest pieces for me, um, especially coming at it as um, a woman kind of in the Me Too age. My first mm. thought was, oh, absolutely not. Is some old white guy in Salt Lake going to tell me what to do? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it's different. And um, once that issue was resolved for me, it was resolved. And I don't think I've thought about it very much since. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I will say this, um, regarding the Mormon land interview. Um, yeah, the, the questions are leading. It's not, it's not a great interview from that perspective. I've been on Mormon land, um, after, oh, I, yeah, gave you a, have. after I gave a talk for fair, the, the other side of it is, I do think one of Peggy's strengths is that she, at least with me, was willing to say, what do you want to talk about? What are the questions that I need to ask you so that you can talk about those things? Mm. Those weren't the only questions she asked me, but it was very collaborative. It was very, um, it, feed me you a question. You felt like you were treated fair on there. Right? I, I did. And that, that's um, good to hear. Yeah. And so I, I wondered, like, is she doing some of that here? Like, she asked him to just feed her some questions. Um, 
in which case the perspective of the guest kind of gets like doubled down on in a way like that's a real that's a real friendly setup to say what you want to say right yeah and Gregory Pritt shares some great perspectives and thoughts as far as how you know modern day medical uh technology and and (laughs) care is come to a place where physically we can you know, the average human can live longer than expected, but mentally that's not always the case. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, go ahead. I, I'd also say this, um, because our church is structured with the vast majority of positions being fairly short term volunteer positions, yeah. like the turnover in a normal ward is tremendous, right? People, people move yeah. in and out like the, that's a problem in some ways because there isn't a lot of continuity. The Bishop solves a little bit of that because he's there a little bit longer term. The stake president offers a stabilizing force to the entire stake because he's there a little bit longer term, whatever area authority people are over him, even a little bit longer term. So for me, it makes sense to say somebody's got to be in this for life. Right. In other ways, you get the same dynamic that you get in like the state legislator legislature where they're elected for two years. Like, what can you do in two years? They they might pass some great bill. And then in two years, 90 percent of the people have turned over and they don't want to do it anymore. Right. So I kind of like the stabilizing force of it. I uh, yeah, let me stand up for Peggy a little bit. I uh, too. I, I really like Peggy. Uh, she's been uh, a good friend to me. She's she's done very kind things to me. And coming from the world of religious journalism, which is my background, I think sometimes we take for granted just how lucky we are to have a religious journalist of this caliber who writes this much and this prolifically about our faith. Peggy and I disagree on lots and lots of things, um, but she does really good journalism. Uh, and and you don't get that just that sheer amount of religious journalism in many other places. Uh, and so I think just for that case, that the fact that she's there doing it very well regarded on a national level. Um, and when I was on Mormon land, I had a very similar experience. She, uh, oh, cool. I was talking about journalists at the time. And so I think she felt a little, a little bit attacked by what I was saying. And so it was not, uh, she wasn't so much helping me along, but it was a very respectful conversation with a great back and forth. I have a lot of respect for her. Anyway, sorry. Like you were defending Jeff earlier. I'm like, well, I got to stand up for Peggy. I like Peggy. <laughs> good. Good. Um, <laughs> but uh, and she's been good to me. She's been very good to me. But uh, awesome. I think part of what is hard about this conversation is that there are 15 men who are directly related. So as soon as we start talking about whether or not this is a good thing, then we're saying, oh, who do you want to get rid of? Mm. Right. You know, and I think that's part of the problem. It's like, well, I don't want to get like, I'm not speaking bad about any one of the presiding authorities of the church. Right. I believe all of them. I sustain every single one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, and it's hard to kind of separate this question uh, from it. And I think something that may be theologically hard for Latter-day Saints, as Craig Prince said, there's no policy that says they have to serve for life. That's certainly true. Mm-hmm. If, if they announced something like this that would happen, I don't think anyone would have a hard time, you know, following the prophet and that, you know, there's going to yeah. be more over it. That yeah, I'm, I'm OK with that if they want to go that direction. Yeah. But I think something that's hard theologically is that when someone is called to be a prophet, the only real scriptural examples we have of them not serving as a prophet anymore is when they're killed or when they become a fallen prophet. 
Mm-hmm. So then if we're saying, oh, this person is now 70, they're not a prophet anymore. They weren't a 70, right? That's an example they used a lot that became, you know, those are people who are running the church, governing the church. They were never held as a prophet. No one ever raised their hand, sustaining them as a prophet. And so if we're saying, hey, this person was a prophet, well, why aren't they anymore? Mm-hmm. And I think that is a question that might make this issue hard to talk about right we have to have an answer to that question how can we say this person had the gift of prophecy and god isn't talking to them anymore in the same way and if we say well they are we're just not listening to them then you get um schism Mm -hmm. uh, you know things that can happen schism wise i know that was one of the big concerns when benedict stepped down is now we have two voices and of course he's been very very quiet since then for exactly that Mm -hmm. reason Um, But even in the Catholic Church, like there's no gift of prophecy there. Right. So even if he spoke, there wouldn't be the same level of of risk. And and so I do think that makes this conversation perhaps a little bit harder theologically than maybe Gregory Prince was giving credit to. Yeah. And I just have a hard time thinking that it isn't working well. And I get there's been instances where, you know, President Benson, uh, President Kimball, uh, even President Monson for a time, you knew that they were just sort of, you know, unofficially sort of playing a smaller part. And I'm okay with that. And and mm-hmm. I think God's hands is in that. And a lot of people, you know, give credit to President Nelson, which he deserves of all these changes that, you know, he was such this dynamic leader early on making all these changes. Well, I believe a big part of that, and I've talked to some people who confirm this, is that there was sort of this backlog. They didn't want to make a lot of changes without President Monson Mm. being the one to come out and, and declare them and whatnot. And so they sort of, we'll put these aside for now. And once we are able to bring these to the table again, we'll do that. And then, you know, they just came as an open floodgate when uh, president Nelson took that, took that seat and that mantle. So um, anyways, I appreciate you sticking up for Peggy and anybody else who wants to stick up for Peggy. Hey, she's got an open invitation to this week in Mormons and I'd love to and chat with her and have give her the same amount of respect that she deserves. So I will say there's a dog that's not barking here. And that is, and I get Peggy as a religion per, per, uh, reporter, but if you want to have a conversation that unifies the country, let's talk about and maximum age for the president of the United States. And this will impact both parties. Okay. I'm just going to put that out there. I would, I would get behind that type of legislation of saying maybe, a president of the United States should only can only be this this old as there is a limitation on the other end. And the other thing I love about our model in our church is this this first presidency corner of the twelve. Like you look how President Hinckley. I have a, a picture of him right here behind me of of when he was the only healthy, active, the third council in the first presidency. Like our system allows that for our prophets and our seers to get ill. And we're going to step up. I know that it's not going to work exactly the same or the same decisions will be made. But I think I would say that this system, as it's been revealed, is working and it's working quite well. So any other thoughts on this topic? I worry one of the hidden assumptions about bringing young people in is that they think that that younger leadership would get different revelation about the direction of the church. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not – you certainly don't have to get into prophetic infallibility to – uh, you know, yeah. that heresy to say, okay, obviously they're they're going to be doing things different. They're all going to have different ministries. And yet to suggest, I, I think the worry with that argument is it suggests that the Lord is not capable of working through an older prophet to have generational change. And I don't believe that. 
you know, I think if the Lord needs something changed in this church, he can work through a 98-year-old man just as well as he could work through a 58-year-old man. I want to make sure we, I'm curious about this uh, study about mental mental illness yeah. in Utah. That summarizes yeah. it. So it's, um, I guess, is it a study or, yeah, it is a study, right? Yep. Yeah. So they rank every state on mental illness prevalence is, is what it's claiming to measure. The only way to measure the prevalence of mental illness, like there's not a blood test for that. Right. There's not a. <laughs> it's such a like, spectrum, right? Right. The only way to measure that is to say in what states are more people accessing services. We really want people to be accessing services. We want them accessible. We, we want like people who are struggling to be able to access those. Utah happens to come in number one on this survey, which I am thrilled with because what that means is they're accessing more services than anybody else. To be fair, in the top 10, um, the state at number 10 is Arizona um, and they're given about a 24% and Utah has almost a 30%. So the top ones are pretty close together. But the fact that like, not that Utah is identical to what the church is, but there's a lot of church people in Utah. And, <laughs> yeah. and somehow the culture has changed enough that accessing mental health services is seen as a really, really good thing. Um, some people have taken this story to say, look at them in Utah. They're so crazy. They need all this help. Yeah. And it's all the um, church's fault, right? <laughs> all the church's fault, which is fascinating because the other, the other states that are also on the top of the list, Washington state is one of them. Um, I did my training to become a mental health therapist in Seattle. The constant joke is that Seattle has more therapists than people. Wow. <laughs> which, which is a joke, right? <laughs> Barely. Okay. All right. Um, but there's lots and lots and lots and lots of mental health interest in at least Western Washington, where people going to therapy is a super normal thing. There's lots of demand for it. And there's lots of providers of it to see that Utah outranked it in terms of people being able to access services. I was just thrilled with that. I think the people who are using that to be critical and say, oh, all those crazy, those crazy people who belong to the church, like that is not how you want to interpret this information. That makes mental health harder hmm. to get at, not easier. You yeah. know, there's so many ways that people can self-medicate that the church takes off the table, alcohol, yep. uh, drugs. And so I think taking those things off creates a culture where you're now seeking out help in, hmm. in, yep. in better, more holistic ways. I'm working on a book right now, Kurt, where I'm looking at the experience of people in faith, of faith in therapy and what that oh, experience wow. is like. We've had a, a big cultural change, like Jen just mentioned, uh, in how we're viewing therapy. And I don't think we've really totally grappled with how this has affected kind of the way we're looking at the world. And so I decided to jump into this space. And one of the things that I, I found in interviewing a lot of people is that people aren't equating visiting their therapist with going to a doctor's office, which I think is what people are even looking at this data as, is okay, well, they're going to get the help they need. People aren't seeing it that way. They're saying going to the therapist is like going to the gym, right? Mm -hmm. This is preventative healthcare. This is taking care of their mind, not just fixing problems. And so people who are going into therapy more and more and more doesn't even necessarily reflect mental health problems. 
I don't think we would look at a state that has the highest rate of gym usage and be like, well, they're the sickest state. Yeah. Right. And, and so that is a big cultural change, but I think it's very interesting. And the people I've talked to, I've talked to several dozen people and that topic has come up again and again that, um, that they go to see their therapist, not because there's something specifically wrong that they're trying to fix, but because they're trying to keep ongoing issues from becoming bigger. Uh, and so because this is measuring people going to see a therapist, I think that's part of what we have to keep in mind interpreting this data. Interestingly enough, the states that are on the other end of the spectrum, so they have the fewest people who go to therapy, um, Florida and California rank really high on those. The reason is not because those people are not struggling with mental health things, but in it, in exchange, they, they don't go to a therapist. Instead, they're seeking um, various alternatives to therapy, um, which is terrifying because most of those people are like non-licensed life coaches or something like that, that um, they're not doing the same kind of careful non non coercive work that a therapist might do. Um, it's very like loosey loosey. It's not regulated in any way. Um, those are the states I'm worried about. Yeah. So Jen, is it easy? I mean, could they have written a headline differently? Like it could almost be a badge of honor, right? Like Utah is the, the state most likely to utilize therapy, like, yeah. right? Like that's a good thing. Right. And I mean, if you even listen to, to conference talks of the last five years, every single every single conference has something about like, go to therapy if you need it. People, come on. Uh-huh. And apparently folks have been listening. So there you go. Good. One thing to throw in there for this study, because they're not just looking at people attending therapy, but people getting diagnoses. And what some mm-hmm. people do not know about that is in order to get your insurance to pay for yeah. your therapy, you often have to get a diagnosis. You always do. A lot of therapy is done without that, without the insurance, Mm -hmm. but that tends to be for lower income people. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of what you're seeing with the Utah data is that higher income people are utilizing therapy and thus are using their insurance. And Mm -hmm. that's why you're getting a higher rate of diagnoses. And why is that in Utah? I I mean, I I don't know why that would be the case, but I think that's part of what's happening there as well. Nice. So it basically comes down to it's complicated, right? Yeah. Maybe that's the that's the tagline for this this podcast. This week in Mormons, it's complicated, it's, right? It's a little complicated. <laughs> Seems like every story. I mean, it's nuanced. That's the world we live in, and it's awesome. So, um, all right, I want to read off a few stories here. But any any other story you want to make sure we hit before we we wrap up? We'll we'll give every every uh, story a mention, but. Uh, I, do you want to talk about the um, higher levels of tithing in the UK? Well, I mean, why wouldn't we? Jen? Why wouldn't I mean, we? <laughs> sure, jump into it. Let's do okay. it. So um, not every country or state requires charities to disclose the, um, the, the financial gifts that they receive. In the UK, all registered charities are required to file an annual report that says, here's exactly the dollar amount that we received in in charities and the uk um releases this information that maybe a week ago maybe not quite a week ago interestingly enough let me pull this up the the tithing dollars collected by the church in the uk last year at its highest amount ever wow 
what are you what are you doing over in yeah. the UK, man? Like I I don't understand what exactly that is. Because there's this feeling that that religion is shrinking, right? And and I especially think a lot of areas, Europe. yeah, yeah, especially in Europe. That's right. It, the the previous high was roughly like thirty million pounds. Um, and the current high, almost 35 million pounds. Wow. I don't know what that is in dollars. It's a lot. Yeah. Good job, UK. <laughs> Good job, UK. <laughs> you guys are doing something. Yeah, and it's, it, it's nice to sort of assume that maybe that trend is happening internationally, right? In every country, but. Yeah, I would love to have access to that data, but for yeah. most places we don't. Yeah. Well, if. There if, you go. Uh, if if any indication of if we build more temples when tithing goes up, that, that we can assume that maybe that's what's happening. But we're definitely spending a lot of money on temples, so that's that's encouraging for sure. So awesome, uh, Christopher. Any any final story or, or mention you want to want to make? You know, there's been a lot of stories for the church this year, and a lot of them have been very critical. And so I was very curious about a report that uh, that the Fox station did. Uh, in I think it's, uh, Salt Lake's local Fox station did on what are perceptions of the church. And it was a 10 minute story looking at some of the rationale that might be behind some of the, uh, some of these stories. They talked both about what's happening in the news, but also all of the documentaries and uh, yeah. the banner of heaven that have kind of happened and sort of stacked up and what's going on. And they didn't have any really, great uh firm answers but it was certainly an interesting exploration worth checking out yeah i started a documentary the other day having no idea what just like the picture looked interesting the premise looked at 10 minutes in it's like oh good golly it, this is this is another like here's the ways that the members of the church are crazy and so like i didn't so, even so you started it you didn't know it was any any way adjacent to our faith yeah, no, it's it been, it like, been on Netflix for like three days. I'm like, oh, what is this? This looks fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it gets yeah. the new thing. Something that was really frustrating that they brought up is how often they take these people who have left the church mm-hmm. or were never part of the church, but just kind of, I guess, part of the larger restorationist umbrella like Warren Jeffs. But these documentaries are always coming back to the church. It's like, right. why do we have to talk about these people again? Like, they have nothing to do with us. Why are you trying to connect yeah. us over and over and over again? I, I have a friend who messaged me maybe six months ago and said, oh, I'm, I'm watching a documentary about your church. Uh-huh. Like, really? Oh, that's fascinating. What are you watching? And it turned out to be something about Warren Jeffs. Oh, no. <laughs> well, at least he had an opportunity there to clarify, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, yeah, how many other people are making that assumption mm-hmm. just because they, they show some B-roll of the Salt Lake uh, Temple or Temple Square or whatever it is, you know. There's a, the Daybell documentary, which is probably Netflix, maybe Hulu, maybe something else. I think it's else. Netflix, yeah. Um, I, or each one has their own. Who knows? <laughs> they they give lip service a couple of times to like, this couple was in this sort of fringe group, but then they keep showing shots of like the Rexburg Temple and like some random meeting house. Like, you can't um, say one thing and then show visuals of another thing and expect yeah. people to not be confused. Yeah. Especially the daybell, like the the murders happened. It was wasn't it in Rexburg, right? And so in Rexburg, yeah. the Rexburg Temple just happens to be in the background. Yeah, <laughs> so there's yeah. other parts of Rexburg you could show, you know. Right, in literally every shot that shows the town, there's yeah. a shining temple. Yeah, thanks you know, Netflix. Getting back to how lucky we are to have Peggy. There's just so much religious illiteracy among yeah. journalists generally. 
that for them, this idea of offshoot, like recognizing that there's like this specific structure with membership roles and they are not us. Like those are concepts that sometimes they can't even understand. Yeah. Like they don't even realize why they're being misleading um, because they're just trying to jump into this world without any of the kind of foundational knowledge. And it makes sense. It's such a deep world with so many of our own ideas and assumptions mm-hmm. and worldviews and language. And yet they're trying to tell a piece of it without really knowing enough to start the story. You see that in the, the AP story about the Bisbee, Arizona case where the journalist calls the dad um, it, a regular a regular member or a, a faithful attending member or something. And like by no means would he meet the definition of what we would say an active member is, but he's called an active member in the story. Like it, it doesn't mean what he thinks it means anyway. Nice. Well, not bad for a slow news week. So this is good. Right. <laughs> and uh, of course, follow us on all our social media platforms where we've highlighted the articles we've already talked about. And, uh, uh, other things like uh, looks like President Nelson dedicated a land for the Heber Valley Temple, so that's happening. Um, and Elder Rasband went to a BYU football game, a BYU Notre Dame football game with a pastor, or I'm not, not a pastor, a, um, a, pr- a priest, Father Jenkins from the Catholic Church, was just, you know obviously it's a Brigham Young University playing Notre Dame, and Governor Cox was there. He shared a snapshot on on uh, Twitter, so we reshared it and. Uh, I don't know. This will be maybe a future topic for this week in Mormons, but it seems like more uh, general leaders are making more comments about, um, I, I don't want to say going green, but like the earth and caring for uh, being good stewards of the earth, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not a message you've heard a lot in, you know, Bishop Casse mentioned it in his conference talk. So lots to talk about. We would love to hear from those listening uh, and fire back. We want the the heated emails. We can take it. I'd love to share it online. More love for Peggy. And yeah, listen, if she was my neighbor, I'd mow her lawn. I'd shovel her walks. And I'd just say, hey, Peggy, ask better, better questions sometimes. I'm just saying, okay? Um, and, uh, and, and I really hope that someday that we can have a conversation together. That'd be awesome. And uh, Christopher, what uh, plug plug all things public square or a, a side hobby you have or a side hustle you have whatever you want to do what where should people look for you public square is my passion so that is my side hobby my main hobby everything uh, go check us out publicsquaremag.org we're active on twitter and facebook and uh, we've just started out on instagram and doing some great work there our pictures are amazing check it out <laughs> <laughs> the filter quality is out of this world. So, uh, and and Christopher, you come back. Will you do this again? Kurt, I would love to do this again. I think you kind of know me and know what I'm about. Anytime, yeah. I'd be useful chatting about the news this week. Yeah, happy to jump on. Cool. Well, that'll definitely happen. And Jennifer, your podcast is coming out someday soon. Well, if if I have <laughs> something to say about it, but anything else you want to plug or if people want to uh, follow you? Yeah. No. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I don't. I don't have anything pluggable. I'm just who I am. Not yet, know. Jennifer. No. Not yet. Thank We're you. working Thank on you. it. So, <laughs> hey, everybody! Like, seriously, become a patron. Uh, I, I always do. We call them patrons, but it, the website is Patreon. I don't know. Become a Patreon uh, with this week of Mormons at Patreon.com/slash This Week of Mormons, and I promise you, we're getting some awesome exclusive content like you can jump on over there and you can listen to the jeff mccullough interview that i did with him 
And maybe if I feel like it, maybe the general audience will hear it. But even if I do release it to the general audience, there's going to be another interview that I put up there that you're not going to be able to hear. So come throw us a few bucks and uh, because I need to be able to pay some hosts like these guys <laughs> and that I can uh, give it, give you better quality uh, production here and have an editing staff and all those fun things that I take for granted over at leading saints where we have a revenue system that pays for those things. Not so much here. So Jennifer, Christopher, thank you for joining us and uh, we'll see who pops up here next week. Actually it's the twin sisters next week. So I get a week off, which is good because I'm going to be on a church history tour and I don't think I want to uh, broadcast from the church history tour. So until next week, folks, this week in Mormons, where we talk all things about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and also all things Mormonism.